0: Thank you, brother, leading us in worship. You can be seated. In Luke chapter nine, last week. The last couple of weeks, Jesus was setting his face like flint to head to Jerusalem. And we remembered that as he was heading south, it seemed like he had to go through Samaria again, just like in John chapter 4. And he came into Samaria and the Samaritans said, no, they did not receive him. He said, you can't stay and make lodging. They rejected the Christ, and the sons of thunder, James and John, wanted to call down fire from heaven and incinerate the Samaritans, to consume them. And Jesus, the text says very simply, and Jesus rebuked them and went on to the next village why fire from heaven well we read about it the Samaritans didn't have any dealings with the Jews, the Jews didn't have any dealings with the Samaritans, they hated one another the Samaritans to the Jews were half breeds they didn't worship properly, they didn't worship in the right place. They didn't worship in Jerusalem. They worshiped on Mount Gerizim. They were theologically inept. They believed in half the scriptures and they got that part wrong. And there was just much past war and intrigue among the Jews and Samaritans. They hated each other. So that's why They were ready to call fire down from heaven. Why did Jesus rebuke? Why were they rebuked by the Christ? John chapter 4 will help us. We turn aside to John chapter 4 to answer that question, why Jesus rebuked them. And the answer is simple. Jesus came. The first time when he came, he was on a mission of mercy to the whole world. And we're going to see this played out. We're going to see what it means to have our one singular priority from last week, our one priority to be this, to be proclaiming the kingdom of God, that he is indeed the Savior of the world. We're going to see why it wasn't appropriate to bring fire down, and why Jesus rebuked the disciples. So take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 4. It's tough to pick up the context, that's why we read quite a long section from our scripture reading from John chapter 4. And we're going to be looking kind of the end of that section. But first, let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, we come to your word. We're thankful for this account of how Jesus must go through Samaria. Most people went around to get to Jerusalem, but he went right through. And he went right through to seek and to save the lost on a mission of mercy. Thank you for the heart of our Savior. And for showing us the beauty of Christ. And may we have his same mission. And have a heart for what he loves. Holy Spirit, would you do this work in us. And if there is someone here who does not yet know Jesus. That today would be the day of their salvation. The day that they would drink the living water and find right now eternal life in Jesus. And it's in His name we pray. Amen. The other day we were around the dinner table having a nice conversation with the family and I don't know how long ago it was but we were speaking about our favorite meals, going around the table and everyone has to proclaim their favorite meal. It came to me, it was a tough decision between tacos and, but my final answer was a big juicy ribeye steak, perfectly marbled. Cooked on my grill, on the deck with the sun shining on it. And that one... Thor, don't look at me like that. When I go to Arizona, I know. That one 75-degree day in Minnesota that we just have to drop everything for. Cook that steak. But eat that steak and it's a good meal, isn't it? I mean, God made us... To, to be satisfied and to enjoy Him through that meal and to see His goodness in that meal. It's not just calories and nourishment. There's refreshment and there is joy in that food. We need food and yet that ribeye steak is much more than just calories. It's great joy. In our passage this morning, Jesus applies the joy of eating to the spiritual realm. I want you to see it in John chapter 4. We're going to pick it up midstream, so I hope you are listening in the scripture reading. John chapter 4, verse 34. We'll start in verse 31. So Jesus has been working with the woman who was out away from the city by the well, she came to Christ and, and now the whole city was coming out to that well to have a look at Jesus. Meanwhile, verse 31, look at verse 31 of John 4. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat! Eat! But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples were saying to one another, no one brought him anything to eat, did he? I mean, we were just in the town buying food. The guy was famished. When we left, he was thirsty, he was hungry. Look at what Jesus says. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields that they are white for harvest. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal, so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. What is the food Of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, verse 34 says, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. And then we go into the whole idea of sowing and reaping, and the context is clearly on evangelism, of of bringing the truth, in this case of Himself. Lost sinners. For Jesus said in Luke, What did he say? Why did he come? He came to seek and to save the lost. And that's what he's been doing in this passage. He was by that well. He was with the Samaritan woman. The disciples were gone. They were buying food. Little did they know that Jesus was eating a good meal by that well that afternoon. He was thirsty. He was exhausted. It was the hottest point of the day. But what does he do? He begins this conversation with this lonely, outcast, shamed woman who's hiding out in the heat of the day by the well, away from the city. He says, give me a drink. But then he shares with her about another kind of water, a water that is better than the water from Jacob's well, probably. This kind of water that if you took one big, deep drink of it, it would go on the inside, and it would do something on the inside. And there would be this spring on the very inside of you, and there would be this everlasting spring from the inside that would spring up into you until eternal life. She didn't quite get that. She said, that sounds really good, but I don't really know what you mean. So Jesus then goes for it. He goes for it. What does he do? Well, if you're going to take a drink of that water, you've got to be thirsty for it. And that's what he does. He creates a thirst, not with a sledgehammer. He pricks her conscience with a rhetorical question. So, Where's your husband? He just gently uncovers her sin, reveals the bad news, exposes her as a false worshiper, makes her thirsty for this water. And then, he, once she's thirsty, he reveals himself to her. And he says, you're thinking about that Messiah? I who am speaking to you am He. I'm the one. I am the one who can remove that shame that you're feeling. I am the one who can deal with that adultery that you're hiding. I am the one who can restore you. I am the one that can, that can so fill you up with life that this would spring forth unto eternal life i a jewish rabbi come to you an outcast samaritan woman and i offer you myself i offer you the living water now when jesus was finished with this evangelistic encounter those hunger pains that he was talking about and the, the thirst by that well and respected his humanity had forgotten about him. We'll get to the food later. Let me tell you what happened to me, man. I just ate a full meal. I am content and I am satisfied. This was the food of Jesus. This was His favorite meal. This perfectly marbled ribeye was to Him, in respect to His humanity, being by that well and ministering to a lost sinner and showing her the way of everlasting life. That was His favorite meal. The food of Jesus is to seek and to save lost sinners. And we as His servants were called to enter into that same joy, that same satisfaction, that same contentment. For to bring the gospel to lost sinners is the source of of ultimate contentment and joy for the believer in Jesus Christ. It's the favorite meal. Brainstorm. It's the perfectly marbled ribeye. There's nothing like it. There is no joy like it for believer. For the believer participating in the mission of Christ and the salvation of sinners. So let's, let's see this. Let's, let's dive in. And you have your outline. I'm going to change it, but that's okay. Point number one, notice the sowing of the Samaritan woman. Just change that from salvation. Sowing. The sowing of the Samaritan woman that led to the point number two, the salvation of the Samaritan city. The sowing of the Samaritan woman that led to the salvation of the Samaritan city. First, the sowing of the Samaritan woman. This Samaritan woman was saved in this passage. She was born again. She drank the living water. She acknowledged her thirst, I have no husband. Her eyes are opening to Jesus stage by stage, and that's how it works in this passage. She says, hmm, I perceive that you are a prophet. And then she begins to share her desire for the Messiah and to speak about the Messiah that would come. And I'm a little confused now, but I'm starting to resonate with some of the things you're saying, but the Messiah will come and he will tell us all things. And then Jesus says to her, I who am speaking to you, I am He. And she is marvelously saved right here in this passage. How do I know? Well, there's this new thirst right away for spiritual things. Verse 25, take a look at it in your passage. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called the Christ. And when that one comes, He will declare... All things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. At this point his disciples came and they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek or why do you speak with me? Look at verse 28. So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, Come, see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? And so this woman has this new thirst for the spiritual. This is something that just changes within her at that moment. Evidence? She left her water pot and she went back into the city. What do I mean? It's a very important detail. The water pot was where the water was. Is water important? The water pot was her water pot. You don't leave it. You don't leave it. She completely lost herself out of excitement and joy having taken a drink of a different kind of water, not the stuff in the pot, But of the Christ. She was so gripped, she forgot everything else for a moment. She abandoned the business at hand. She was consumed by a new goal, by a new mission, and she left to go back to the town. To do what? To testify. Come and see. To accomplish her new mission as a believer in Jesus Christ. While the disciples, they're calling fire from heaven and Luke. And here they're just like, where's the real food? And look what we've always done. You're talking to a woman, but they're too scared to ask him about it. It's all wrong. And their, their arms are crossed. And she's hightailing it back into town while her water bottle is wobbling there left alone. She has a new thirst for spiritual things. And secondly, she has a new hunger for the lost. It's amazing to me, (laughs) this should not be, that she would go back and talk to the townspeople. She had come by herself in the heat of the day to get away from people, to avoid the women, To avoid the men, to avoid the gossip, to avoid the stares, to avoid the accusations, to avoid the weight of the shame for who she was in her past. But now she was eager to bear witness to the same people she previously had good reason to avoid. Come and see. It's an invitation. She is excited. You think she whispered this? Come and see. She doesn't just sneak to her family member or to the one woman in the town that, it, that maybe accepted her. No. She wants to bring the entire town. Come and see a man who told me all the things that I have done. Can you believe it? Me. All the stuff that I have done. She needed to explain that to them. They knew all about it. Now, was point of fact, he would explain everything that she'd ever done in her entire life, but this woman was so consumed by this one sin and the shame of it and the rejection of it that this one thing was the everything to her. It defined her, her own wickedness, the centrality of it. It defined herself in the present, her past defined her present. And everyone else, frankly, defined her in that town of Sychar in Samaria by her past sinful, sordid history with men. But this is what struck her about her conversation with Jesus. With that mess and that sinful personal life, that great burden, all of a sudden, it was gone. She was free of it. She's no longer burdened by that shame and hiding from the light, cowering. Now she is rejoicing, and she is loud, and she is sharing, and she's facing those who are despising her and rejecting her for her adultery. And she says, this is not the Christ in it, is it? I'm certain by the way the Greek is written that she knows and she's asking it because she's wise. You think she's the most qualified evangelist in that town, in that setting? No, but so she stirs them up. And it's really not the words about Christ that are so interesting to them. Like, what are you talking about? The Christ. Why in the world would they drop everything in the middle of the day, in the heat, and go out there and, on, on, the wood of, on the word of this woman? I'll tell you why. Why was she not mocked? and ignored because there was something radically different about her. They saw her urgency. They saw her passion, the joy in her eyes. They marveled at the change in her countenance. What has happened to you? Where does this hope come from? Where is it? i got to go check it out. Bill, let's go. The whole town can't believe it and they go it reminds me of that verse by peter always be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within you and to just shine that open this dark world what do they see about our life Now, incidentally, and Don remembers, and surely if you're here, you remember, there's nothing more attractive as far as evangelism than one who has first discovered Jesus. Remember your first love? Oh, Lord, bring it back. Remember Clarence Brown? Many of you don't know Clarence Brown. I can remember when he first got saved here, he was in the hospital, and He would would have to go back to the hospital, and he would talk with people about his desire to get back to church. I just can't wait to get back to church, and his desire, I'm going to get in this book, and I'm going to fight off the darts of the devil, he would tell them. And there's this joy of his new faith, and anybody who knew him for 60 years as a card-carrying sailor from a staunch Catholic background would say, What has happened to you? You're different. One thing is certain this woman is sowing. She is the sower in this passage. See the sowing of the Samaritan woman. How profitable is her first witnessing encounter? Not so much for the disciples. hmm. But the whole city is now coming. to Look at verse 30. They went out of the city and were coming to him. So John is such a great writer. He just gets this picture of the whole city trudging out from the city to the well. Meanwhile, the text says... Jesus takes that time to speak to his disciples. Do you see see it? That's what he does. And so that moves us then to the second heading. As the Samaritans are coming, we see the salvation of the Samaritan city because of the sowing of the Samaritan woman. Look at this under three headings just briefly. The Samaritans' invitation in verse 39 and 40. Okay, so let's look. Back, again, they're coming. They're coming out to see Jesus. And and Jesus is speaking to them about the food that he has, and he's speaking about sowers, and he's thinking, you know, the people that sc- scatter the seed of the word of God, and about reapers, those who are... Uh, able to participate in them coming to know Christ and the joy that we have. And I believe that when he says, lift up your eyes and look to the fields, they lifted up their eyes and they saw not just the fields, but they saw shining down upon the heads of the city as they were coming out to meet Jesus at the well. So they get there and we find verse 39 happens. So go to verse 39 then. After Jesus teaches a little bit, verse 39 happens. From that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all the things that I have done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. So the Samaritans, they arrive on the scene, they want to see this one who could be the Messiah, who knows the hearts of this woman, the one who could work such a radical change in this adulterous woman, who could create such joy in her. And the text says that they believed into him. And let me just tell you, this is theological, work with me. In the book of John, you have, when it says they believed in him, you have to ask yourself, is this the hypocritical belief of the Jews? Is this the head knowledge uh, belief? Or is this true saving faith? Which one is it and how do I know? And in this case, in this first verse, they believed in him, why? Why? Because of the word of the woman who testified, he has done all things that I have done. And so, this is not the hypocritical head knowledge faith of the Jews who want something from Jesus. This is is, is true knowledge that, wow, I'm looking at you and I'm looking at Jesus and this is looking pretty good. And I'm telling you, we got to bring people all the way. It is one thing to say that chair right there, that this stool, that looks like that stool might hold me up if I sit on it. That is not saving faith. Until you're convinced of it, until you sit on that stool and put your feet up, put all your weight on that stool, you have not yet trusted into the Christ. I think something of that plays out in this passage as it does in many of the passages in the book of John. So the Samaritans urged him, and this is what's interesting, I love this. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. So they're asking Jesus, better translation, they're begging Jesus. The Holy Spirit's at work. They're begging Jesus to stay with them. They want to hear from Jesus. And they're begging Him. They won't be denied. Jesus, stay with us. And they're begging Him. Over and over and over, the text says in the imperfect tense. They were asking Him to stay with them. Now, isn't that not your experience as you were coming to Christ? That you couldn't be turned away. That you had to hear from him. When he's calling you, you couldn't be denied. Nothing would stand in your way. Because there's a bunch of Samaritans that don't have dealings with the Jews, especially not Jewish rabbis. This is not normal. Would you stay with us? Would you speak to us? We want to know more what you did to this woman. And what you're we want to hear from you. Jesus accepted their invitation, stayed with them two full days. And then secondly, notice the Samaritans' conversion. First their invitation, now their conversion. Now, I would love to have heard what Jesus said in those two days. But the result of those two days speaks for itself. The text says... Many more believed because of his word. And yes, there's an increase in the number who believed, but that's not, I think, the best translation of the way that Greek text is. It's not about more Samaritans. This is about, this is about the depth of the faith. This is the content of the faith. You could translate this, they believed much more. It's a deepening of that whole crowd's it who Look, it wasn't half the crowd that decided to hear the testimony of the woman and half the crowd that got to hear from Jesus. Everybody would not be denied. They heard the testimony, they heard from Jesus, and it's the faith that deepened, not the number of people saved. That's how John writes. We're not in John, I get it. Now we know they say. Look at it. And they were many more believed because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. They believe because of his word. Did you see that? It's a fascinating passage. Listen, faith is not real faith if it rests in the testimony of another person. Let me say it this way. Second-hand testimony of Christ. What he did for someone else that looks really fascinating. I might want a piece of that. Secondhand testimony is not a substitute for a direct personal encounter, a personal relationship, personal trust into the living Christ. So the saying to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said. They're not denigrating her testimony. That testimony was good as far as it went. It was passionate. It was godly. It was great sowing. Oh, this is great sowing. It is. It is great plowing. Face like Flint, plowing of the soil, hoping the fruit will be born. Why was this effective though? Why was this effective? Come and see. Let me tell you, I'm different. Can you believe it? Me? He told me everything that I did. And that personal testimony was good, but it was not enough. Verse 42, here's what has to happen. We have heard for ourselves, firsthand acquaintance, and he uses a different word. One's testimony, a different word. This is logos. This is the word of Jesus Christ. This is a word from Christ. John is making a distinction. And the words here, we have heard, have heard, for ourselves, and we know. That's called a perfect tense. In other words, there's a settled state that happened after those two days with Jesus. There's a sitting on the chair and putting their feet up. There's a trust in Christ that happened as they heard from Christ Himself. A settled state. And they know it's not conceptual. There's experiential knowledge of Jesus Christ. It's a full, complete, settled knowledge. It's like a head knowledge, and you remember the day. It's the head knowledge that settles into the heart and becomes a real relationship, real saving faith. Happened on the testimony of Christ. Now, brothers and sisters, listen to me on this. This is the essence of our participation in the mission of Jesus Christ. This is our mission ribeye steak. Right here. This is our great joy. Listen carefully. We should tell people our testimony. We should be ready to give an answer for the hope. We need to do what the woman does, a faithful sower. But, but it is incomplete if we do not bring people to Jesus Christ himself. We've got to bring people to Jesus. We've got to introduce them to Jesus. Is Jesus standing here today? No. How do we bring people to Jesus then? We have heard for ourselves. How do you hear of the living Christ? You bring them to the book of God. You bring them to the Christ of God in the Scriptures. You've got to bring them to Jesus in the Word of God. Lenski is right, quotes, Jesus stands before us today in, in person in His Word. And we can hear Him directly and Personally, in that word as if we had sat among the listeners for two days in that town of Samaria that's the power of the word people must have personal contact with Jesus in order to be saved in order to make faith complete they must so testimony of our experience is good Reasoning about creation and evolution serves its purpose. Answering the question of evil for your buddy named Jason is helpful as far as it goes. Defending the Word of God is important. All these things have their place. But all of these are incomplete sowing because ultimately we must get to it. We've got to get to Jesus. Jesus. We've got to get to the gospel of Christ. We've got to get to the good news of the gospel. We've got to get them into the word of God. We must tell people of Jesus Christ. We've got to introduce them to the Savior. It may not be on day one, but our hearts and our minds and our mission is to get them to Jesus and to pray to that end. You remember John the Baptist? Right? Who could forget John the Baptist? He did many things: the locust, the honey, the wilderness. He had disciples, he debated the Pharisees. He quoted the scriptures and said that rocks would cry out. I mean, he spoke about the bad news, like nobody's business. Am I right? The rocks are going to cry out if you don't, and it's all this stuff. None of this would have been effective had he not at the end of the day said this, and you know what? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Nothing would have been complete in the witness of John the Baptist without pointing people to Christ. It just wouldn't have been. It would have been incomplete we can get sidetracked by so many peripheral issues they're important we can debate politics social issues type of schooling we can argue about praying to mary and the holy water certainly some value in all those things, but we cannot get sidetracked. Do you know Jesus? Do you love Jesus? Do you love my Jesus? Are you forgiven? Are you released? And our witness will be effective ultimately when we introduce people to the power of the gospel itself, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, when we bring them to the person of Jesus Christ and say, do you realize that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. Or as many as receive him, if you receive him, as many as receive him, he gives the right to be called children of God. Do you imagine? You and me, Bill, I mean, we're losers. Do you remember us in high school? To give us the right to be children of God. So the Samaritan woman was sowing when she testified her personal change and pointed people to Jesus Christ. She was faithful as a sower. Oftentimes, I think we're discouraged in our witness, aren't we? I mean, does anybody get saved anymore? Do you ever say that? Is it still happening? Or am I saying it wrong? Or is something wrong with me? We need to remember that at this side of heaven, we may never see the fruit of our labors. Let me encourage you with something. There's a man named Reverend Branner. He once promised to preach. He said he'd preach for a country minister in England he'd fill the pulpit for this country minister but when sunday rolled around it was the weather was horrible outside it was snowing it was windy it was difficult to travel it was winter time but the reverend branner decided he'd made a commitment to cover the pulpit so he's going to go so he goes he pushes his horse through the drifts he arrives at the church and he's alone i mean that's kind of a rough deal except one Soul straggles in the back and sits in the back pew. Nothing to see here. So he takes a seat behind the pulpit. He waits. Finally, that one man's there. He said, You know, I said I'd preach, so I'm going to preach. So he preaches. The guy's in the back. He preaches his sermon. And he wants to talk to this guy. But he he gets up to talk to the guy, but the guy bolts. That's never fun either. The guy bolts through the back door, and he's gone by the time he can get back there. How's that for a pulpit-fill opportunity? (laughs) He left discouraged about the whole thing. Twenty years later, in another village, a gentleman walked up to... Pastor Branner, quote, this is, good Good morning Reverend Branner, I don't, I don't remember you, said the minister, I suppose not, but we once spent two hours together in a church alone in a storm, I do not recall it sir, tell me when it was, do you remember preaching 20 years ago in a certain place to only one person, oh yes, yes, yes. I do indeed. If you're that man, I've been wishing to see you ever since. I am that man, sir. And that sermon was used by God for my salvation. I have become a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And over there is my church. And the converts from that sermon, sir, are many. The Lord was pleased to give Reverend Branner a glimpse of the harvest in this life. But I want you to see this. I want to encourage you with something. Look at verse 36. Look at verse 36 of John 4. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for eternal life. So that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. And the way that the text is put together here, the emphasis on the rejoicing is actually in the sowing. I think God is challenging us here a little bit. There is great joy. There is great contentment and satisfaction. There is eating the marbled ribeye in sowing your testimony and sowing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Whether or not you see any fruit, there is joy in the sowing. There's joy in the sowing. And the re- we have been lied to by so many different modern evangelistic movements that the criterion for successful ministry is the number of people that sit in the pews or the number of would-be converts that we've notched on our belt or whatever our book or our journal or whatever it is. We've said it to ourselves that the, that, that is the source of joy. No, the text is interesting here. It's the depth of plowing. It's the sowing of the seed of the word of God. There is such joy in simply being faithful and proclaiming the word of Christ. You know this to be true, Christian. Right? Just yesterday, or were a volleyball tournament. I got a sermon to preach. So between games, I'm plugging into the computer, got my coffee, I'm sitting down, I got 45 minutes for the next game, I got to get to it. I'm looking at my notes, and I mean, who does this? I'm sitting there, there's me with this table this big, and two other people are like plop down at my table. It's like, I'm right here with their, with their beers, and I've got this sermon, and they're like, hey, what are you working on? I'm working on a sermon from John chapter 4. I got to share Jesus. And I was so filled with joy. And I wasn't before that. I was so filled with joy. It's our food to participate in the mission of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord wants faithfulness. The faithful to point people to Jesus for proclaiming the word of testimony and the word of the gospel. The joyful work of sowing. As Isaiah fifty-five eleven says, So my word which goes forth from my mouth, it will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the manner for which I sent it. And then, finally, notice the Samaritans' confession. And they were no longer saying to the woman, it is no longer what you have said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. What did he say for those two days? Well, this one's the Savior of the world. They had heard the same thing. They had their sin exposed. And they heard about the same Savior who was willing to give them a drink of that living water. And they reasoned. If this one, this Jew, was willing to speak and accept Jew, uh, traitors to the Jews, half-breeds, and unclean heathens to the Jewish mind, if he was going to pour out his love and mercy on this, who in the world would he ever reject? He indeed is, for the first time, it's said in the Gospel records, he is the Savior of the world. The Samaritans knew it, despite their disadvantage, that His love and His mercy and His gospel and His person and His living water was enough to embrace a whole world of sinners. So the disciples learned about the food of Jesus. Even despised outcast Samaritan women was a target for the love and the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. And now we have a little bit of a feel why Jesus rebukes the sons of thunder when, he asks, when they asked to call down fire on the Samaritans. Because Jesus wasn't wanting to pour out fire on the Samaritans. Jesus was looking to pour out living water on the Samaritans. this water everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life Have you taken a long drink of the living water yet? Or does it just look pretty refreshing sitting right there? Today is the day you take up the cup and you drink deeply of Christ. That is, you trust Him. That His death can cleanse you of all your sins. That His life Will bring you to God Himself. And in your own heart, you will become a genuine worshiper in spirit and in truth for the first time. You don't got to earn this. You don't got to whip it up for 20 years. You can drink today. You can have your sins gone and your shame released, the burden gone. You can do this today for God himself said in Isaiah 45:22 Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth for I am God and there is no other Let us pray